Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. It's great that you're with us. Got a good show planned for you. But I also got to say right up front, I really appreciate when I hear from people that they share, they say, hey, go to moneytalks.net, see, you know, Money Talks tweets, that kind of stuff, and listen to the podcast. So I want to say I really appreciate it. We've got some good stuff planned for you. I've got Brian Gitt on with me. Brian has done this fabulous job. He used to be one of the most uh, foremost solar uh, advocates in California, managed uh, major projects coming out of the government. He completely changed when he saw that in practice. He is going to talk to us about renewables, uh, talk about energy poverty, but also talk about nuclear and the renaissance it's having. It's going to be great. I've got Vivian Krauss with me, who was our person of the year a few years ago, one of the best when it comes to investigative journalism. I've got more to talk to her about. I've also got Ozzy Jurek. I mean, there's always stuff happening, for goodness sakes, when it comes to the real estate market, but new legislation, the change in your neighborhood, you've got to be aware of. Mike Levy and Victor Dare are both going to talk about the sea change that looks like it's happened when it comes out of our central banks. Well, primarily, we're talking about Jay Powell. Shocking, I think, industry analysts when he came out far more positive, far more dovish about rate decreases than I think virtually anyone was anticipating. But there's a lot to that. Important that you're aware of it. But first, so suddenly we wake up one morning and presto. Our university campuses are full of hateful, anti-Semitic academics, university administrators, LGBTQ plus members, Me Too feminists, ignoring or refusing to acknowledge the horrific crimes, uh, systematic weaponization of rape, not to mention, actually mention, that's a bad choice of word because they don't mention the killing of babies or the mutilation of women after being sexually assaulted. Instead, they tell us we need to consider the context. I'll bet that was certainly a shock to me, but I bet it was a shock to the vast majority of Canadians. I mean, the point is most of us weren't paying attention and are shocked by the rampant anti-Semitism on campus. Maybe more shocked that the federal government has funded a vulgar anti-Semitic as its racism consultant. You know, I think every year for the past 20 years, I've asked, do you know what's going on on university campuses? specifically when it comes to the curtailment of free exchange of ideas and the increasing number of subjects that were considered out of bounds. I mean, most Canadians and virtually every politician didn't have much to say when you take a student like Jonathan Bradley. At the time, he was a fourth-year student at Ryerson. By the way, it's now changed its name to Toronto Metropolitan University, succumbing to pressure to conform to the politically correct agenda. But nobody had much to say when Mr. Bradley stated Canadian universities have become places where ideological conformity is expected and diversity of thought is seen as unacceptable. I mean, the cancel culture got its legs on university campuses when people like Condoleezza Rice or Christy Blatchford were prevented from speaking on campuses. Well, most of us said nothing. I mean, pro-life groups were discriminated against and don't even dare challenge the climate change agenda. Instead. It's the antithesis of science what's been happening when you talk climate change, the antithesis of education, featuring a no questions allowed approach. Incredibly, or increasingly prevalent when we start talking about COVID. But my point is that most of us said nothing, even when a fundamental value like free speech was clearly under attack. But, you know, lately I've been wondering, with the blatant anti-Semitism so evident on, on campuses, the hate speech, the bullying of Jewish students, 
fostered by some academics who display an egregious insensitivity to humanity, along with a lack of commitment to traditional liberal education, who put their own ideology above the best interests of student learning. Well, I've been wondering if they're finally going to ask or force most of us to ask what's going on on campus. I mean, the hypocrisy, the hollowness of the so-called safe spaces on campus is now fully exposed. Gosh, if the situation wasn't so serious, it would be hilarious watching the same contingent, by the way, who so vociferously want to restrict opinions they disagree with, suddenly cite their right to free speech when it comes to the blowback to their anti-Israeli pro-Hamas speech and actions, which includes sloganeering for the elimination of all Jews. It reminds me, you know, P.J. O'Rourke said this a while ago. He says, what politicians, activists, and others advocating censorship don't seem to understand, once you've built the big machinery of political power, remember, you won't always be the one to run it. Because now the tables have turned. The cancel culture has taken dead aim at Hamas apologists who want to contextualize rape, sexual assault, baby killing. As the president of Harvard, Penn, and MIT are finding out, Hey, there's no sale. Public doesn't buy it. Now, personally, I am in favor of their right to speak, but I also favor enforcing our hate speech laws. And I don't consider bullying and intimidation directly directed at Jewish students to fall under free speech. But I want to talk about the bigger issue quickly. Now, I'm proud of the fact on Money Talks, I've been talking about the efforts to curtail free speech since the early days when it was clear attitudes, especially in Self-described progressive circles had changed. My point is up to that point, most Canadians have ignored the blatant assault on free speech. But it's intensifying, that's my point. So much like the spread of anti-Semitism on campus. We shouldn't be surprised if we keep ignoring it that one day we wake up and our rights are severely curtailed. Because that's clearly a popular goal of our own liberal government, but other self-proclaimed progressives in New Zealand, EU, Ireland, in the name of stopping misinformation and disinformation, of course, while never acknowledging the avalanche of misinformation that originates with government. But in Canada, we got a liberal government, tried to pass Bill C-10, which former CRTC Commissioner Peter, Peter Menzies stated in quotes, don't just infringe on free expression. It constitutes a full-blown assault upon it and, through it, the foundations of democracy. Gosh, the Heritage Minister at the time, our now Environment Minister, Stephen Guibault, stated that the legislation would give the government unprecedented power over what can and can't be said. But it continued, the whole thrust, Bill C-11, Bill C-36. But most of us didn't seem to mind, or at least maybe we didn't pay attention. And now we've got another new bill, not getting much coverage, Bill S-210, which, as usual, offers the regular rationale like blocking underage children. It's got to be a good thing. So they want to block underage children from access to pornography on the internet and social media. But the powers that it gives government go far beyond that, could be focused in any direction. You know, there's a big contingent of people who consider themselves progressive, who are are convinced that they should be the ones deciding what is and isn't acceptable speech and content. And their powers are growing throughout the Western world, including in Canada. My point is, don't wake up one morning and see, we've got all of these restrictions because we simply weren't paying attention, because the evidence is overwhelming and continues to mount. 
look forward to getting a chance to talk with Brian Gitt, who's one of the foremost advocates of nuclear power. Uh, Brian, first of all, I always appreciate you finding time, but let, let me just start with this. Do you feel vindicated? I mean, <laughs> you look at uh, even the announcement coming out of the COP28, it might be the only, you know, for people who, uh, you know, where the climate is their thing, and that's got to be, to me, the most positive thing coming out of that, the finding of the recognition that nuclear power is going to be the way to go. The world is really finally waking up to the reality that the only way to really achieve zero emissions or not zero emissions, working towards lower emissions is through employing nuclear energy. And so it's it's great to see. I don't I don't feel vindicated. I mean, I think that uh, everyone obviously is doing their best with the information they have. And I think in general, um, my personal mission is just we need more energy and better energy across the board. And it's going to be kind of a stepped process to get there and excited to see more politicians coming to this understanding. But what a difference when, when you first started talking nuclear and you came out of a, you know, renewable energy, the solar background, you know, so your bona fides were terrific. Uh, but coming out of that, I, I, at least I sense a real change in attitude. Uh, but it's, it's been sort of coming the last year and a half, I guess, or two years uh, and it was really a case of denial, which is still going on. The denialism is still going on in Germany. I, I saw, for example, uh, still opposition to nuclear. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at Korea, Japan, for goodness sakes, uh, you know, China, of course, India, of course. So there's going to be an expl explosion of nuclear power at the very least. Yeah, we're certainly seeing this trend accelerate across the world as these policies shift and more politicians wake up and you're seeing more and more nuclear technology companies emerge and uh, get funded and various investors putting capital behind it. I think it's also important to realize, though, that not everywhere in the world is going to be appropriate to deploy nuclear power first off. I mean, certain areas in the developing world are going to need to build their economic base before they're going to be able to afford nuclear power. And so I think I mean, I'm, I'm, I feel nuclear power is absolutely the future, and I think it's, it's going to play a substantial role. But it's not everything, right? We're, we're going to need fossil fuels, for example, for, for many decades to come, especially in the developing world, to enable them to build the economic foundation to be able to afford cleaner burning, more advanced technologies like nuclear power. And that's what you're looking at in your brand new book called In the Dark. You're looking at policies. You're looking at, you know, I mean, we've been so counterproductive in so many policies. I mean, that's the bottom line. You sort of go, what were they thinking? Whether it's Germany shutting down nuclear without the backup power ready to go, you know, that that wasn't very clever. Uh, you know, with uh, attaching one of my favorite examples is in Ontario, which has made good progress on the nuclear side. But before that, uh, in the previous government, they had all of this uh, renewable power, uh, solar power, and then they forgot they couldn't hook it up to the grid. And we've got lots of examples of that caliber of thinking there. Is that why you wrote the book? There's still a lot of ground to cover, a lot of, uh, you know, policy sort of considerations to take into account. 47% of the world still lives in energy poverty. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine that. That's, that we have, what, 8 billion people on the planet? So it's about 3.7 billion people don't have enough energy. And about one, just shy of 1 billion of them don't have any electricity, right? I mean, imagine this. You wake up in the morning. You carry a jug. You basically hike a trek an hour to go find water. You carry that jug back on your head, that 40-pound jug of water back to your to your, uh, to your family and to your hut that's made out of kind of sticks and straw and mud, and you have no toilet, very, you know, obviously very 
little sanitation practices. So you have germs spreading, all these types of things. You're cooking over a wood fire that is the equivalent of inhaling or smoking two packs of cigarettes a day just by cooking your food and heating your house. I mean, unfortunately, there's hundreds of millions of people living like this. And then there's whole spectrum, obviously, of people living in different stages of energy poverty. Not everyone is in that dire situation. But this is a catastrophic um, problem. If you and I woke up tomorrow in the state that billions of people are living in today, we'd think it was the real apocalypse. That is the apocalypse. And what I find ironic about a lot of the energy policies and climate policies is that we're ignoring the suffering of billions of people today on the hope of solving a future problem that may not even be nearly as big of a problem as, as many people imagine. And so the book is really centered on how do we fix this mis mismatch? How do we fix these energy policies that promote human flourishing and human well-being and at the same time protect our environment? I mean, no one wants to drink polluted water or breathe dirty air. All of us want a clean environment. I mean, I, th I think you go around the world and you talk to people, everyone can agree on that. It is, what is the path to get there? And currently, we're not necessarily on the correct trajectory. I I've always been astounded, by the way, how uh, elitist the Western nations were in this regard. I mean, there's so many examples. Uh, I'm thinking Glasgow, you know, whatever that was, COP26, COP27, uh, you know, and Prime Minister Modi of India basically said, screw you to these people because they were ignoring uh, the plight of so many, uh, you know, poverty and energy policy are absolutely go hand in hand. And yet they did something. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Was it called the Glasgow Accord where all 39 Western nations promised not to help Africa if it was fossil fuels? I mean, it really is astounding. And I think that's also coming home to roost. I, I thought there was a little more realism in COP28 because you had the uh, oil producing nations, you know, starting with Dubai, et cetera, saying, no, we're not going to sign something that says we're putting an end to fossil fuels. We don't have a transition planned out. Natural gas has an important role to play, et cetera, et cetera. But as you say, they've been blind to that, especially the impact, though, on developing nations, emerging markets. Yeah, I mean, over the since 1990 from today, so basically 30 plus years, the world has gone from relying on fossil fuels for 87% of our energy down to 82% of our energy. And that's after investing trillions and trillions of dollars in wind and solar. And I think this is at the root of the problem is that the our leaders are under this false notion that this massive investment in wind and solar technology is going to somehow allow us to get off of fossil fuels. And that's not actually happening due to the unreliable nature of them being intermittent. They don't actually replace power plants. They're additional and they can provide value in certain applications in certain markets, but they're not going to wholesale replace the existing power system. Um, and there's another big myth that I think is at the root of a lot of this. And I used to believe this myself, so I'm not casting judgment or blame on a lot of these politicians and leaders and people in power. And I call this the, the damage assumption, which is this false notion that the amount of energy that people consume is directly proportional to the amount of damage, environmental damage mm. that they cause. Um, most people, if you ask them, you say, well, yeah, of course, if you use more energy, you're going to cause more environmental harm. 
That's actually false. And we this is this is quantified across the world that when you look in the poorest countries and developing nations, they have the most pollution. They're they're cutting down their forests for heating their homes and for cooking their food. And unfortunately, all of the endangered species impacts of that deforestation. So when we look around the world and we look at who has the best quality air, the best quality water, um, and the least amount of pollution overall, it's wealthier countries. So what's the solution to this? Well, the solution is to enable and help developing countries to use more energy, not less, to an, so that they can advance and increase, go up the ladder of energy density just like we did. We started with wood and went to coal and then went to natural gas and to nuclear and the rest of the world will follow suit. I mean, again, no one wants to breathe a lot of particulates in the air if they don't have to from a coal plant. And most people will embrace these technologies that are cleaner burning with less emissions over time. But they can't just go overnight from one state to the next. There has to be some kind of building block, economic building blocks to enable that to happen. And and that's certainly been missing from the conversation, uh, the practicality of it. It's one of, one of the things that I've certainly been critical of for years. Is fine, you want to do this? Well, tell me where the pressure, where the rare earth minerals are coming from. Where, where's your cobalt coming from? Where's all of this stuff to build that out? And of course, it wasn't available. Uh, and you know that's still a huge challenge. It was just this leap to uh, net zero, sort of as if that happens magically in some ten year time frame. You know and. Uh, and that's why I think the book is so welcome because it looks at a policy perspective, looks at, you know, what are, these are alternatives. This is the challenge. And until we appreciate that it is indeed a phenomenal challenge, especially, as you say, for all of the emerging markets, uh, poverty across the world, which is massive. Uh, I, I just don't see this happening. I think that's what's going to hold back the rest of it. They're not going to get cooperation, first of all. I mean, look at China's given us a pretty clear example. Yes, they like nuclear, but they like coal, too, because they are going to use energy. You know, and it just the lack of realism all the way along has and misinformation. Both of them have, have been the dual kind of problems for me when I look at this, pro, uh, trying to go to a lower uh, carbon emission world. Yeah, in my book, that's what I try to do first, is to debunk the existing myths that underlie a lot of our existing policies. And that's really important. These are myths like fossil fuels are being phased out. Well, as we just said, they're, they're not actually being phased out. The fossil fuels are growing three times faster than wind and solar over the last 20 years. You just look at the data. I'm not, I'm not making up new numbers yeah. or facts. I'm just pointing to third-party credible resources, and you can see these trends across the world. So we're going to continue to need fossil fuels for decades to come for transportation, for agriculture, for industry. That doesn't mean we can't diminish it and we, that we can't use cleaner burning fuels like natural gas and nuclear power. We will. Um, but fossil fuels aren't going anywhere is the kind of the foundation. Another myth is that solar and wind are in electric vehicles are really the only things that can save the planet, right? And that these are the best technologies when when you actually look at the life cycle emissions and materials use of these technologies, they're far inferior to things like cleaner burning natural gas and nuclear power and kind of walking through and quantifying those numbers. Um, there's another pernicious myth that nuclear power isn't safe when it's a, it is the safest form of 24-7 reliable energy that we have. And you can just look at the data on that. It's very clear in terms of when you look at <clears throat> death rates per terawatt hour produced. So when you when you start dissecting these myths and, and looking at the underlying data, you can 
really start to see through them. Uh, and then the last one that I mentioned earlier, which is that using more energy damages the environment. I mean, we should want, our goal should not be to reduce energy. Our goal should be to accelerate and use more energy, as much energy as possible. Because as we use more energy, we ultimately will be protecting the environment, consuming fewer resources and polluting less. And so once I kind of walk through and debunk some of these underlying myths that are the foundation of various policies, then what I try to do is, okay, well, how do we actually evaluate these various energy sources? Because there's nothing that's perfect. Nuclear is not perfect. All energy sources have trade-offs. I mean, life is always about trade-offs. There's no perfect silver bullet solution. So I try to lay out, well, what are the evaluation criteria that we should be considering when we're balancing the costs and benefits of all of these different technologies? And these, in, these are broadly based in three major categories, the human factors, environmental factors, and then local feasibility factors. Because as I started off our conversation today, you can't, everything is not um, able to be built everywhere. You know, let's just take something like hydropower. You don't have the water resource everywhere, right? We, everyone loves hydro. It's a, it's a great clean resource, but it's not available everywhere that you would like to build it. Um, same thing with geothermal energy, et cetera. So you need to lay out these criteria and examples of um, human-centered criteria would be things like energy security, reliability, safety, affordability, greenhouse gas emissions, how scalable is it? These are just examples of categories. And then on the environmental side, we have to look at materials use, land use, pollution, waste, all of these things throughout the entire life cycle of the energy source. So all of these things need to be weighed and balanced as we go through. And so that's what I do in the book. I actually apply the criteria to the U.S. And it's imperfect, right? Because you even have to drill down more locally to make these decisions that, you know, what might be right in Arizona is different than New York. Um, But I think it gives a nice framework to think about and critically evaluate what energy sources provide the best path forward. But you're, it's such an important aspect that you're bringing forward, and I thought it was so worthwhile because we don't have a framework. We have not been making energy-related decisions with a broader framework. As you said, just even life cycle emissions, you know, what's the manufacturing of that? Where was the mining of that? What does that produce in the end? Uh, things like reliability clearly were not a consideration in Europe. I mean, <laughs> the fact speaks for themselves. Gee, in Germany, let's get rid of nuclear, but we actually don't have a backup. Let's support uh, Russia's, uh, Russia's energy sector instead against warnings. Uh, the list is a long one, but we have not had a framework from which to make decisions, from which to make discussions. I mean, it's been so ideologically based. And that's, I, I just thought that was an incredibly valuable contribution of the book that uh, it just helps, you know, let's get a conversation starting. Let's have a framework for it. And that's why I thought in the dark, amongst other things, though, I thought, gosh, if anyone, everyone would read that, we'd be better off in arriving at uh, energy-related decisions that are efficient, effective, cost-effective. The list goes on. Well, one thing I attempted to do is to distill down all of these ideas into a very short read and very understandable language without a lot of acronyms and jargon and industry, things that people just don't understand or have to invest hours and hours to research. Because I wanted someone to basically sit down and in one or two sittings in about an hour or so, be able to get a sense of this energy landscape, 
what is kind of a rational and reasonable way to approach evaluation of these things, what are some really specific examples, and just clear, un easily understood language, because there's a lot of good information out there, but it's overwhelming. A lot of it is either too technical or, or not technical enough, um, doesn't have the right citation, and I just wanted to really condense that into a very accessible format. And it, when you really dr dr drill into this data, it's, it's really eye-opening. For example, you know, when most people think of solar panels, they think, oh, that's the, the lowest CO2 emitting option in power source. Well, it's surprising when you actually drill, look beneath the hood and start looking into the data that a large solar plant emits four times more life cycle CO2 emissions than a nuclear plant on average. Now that's looking across the world on average, but it's much actually worse than that when you start drilling into it because 75% of solar panels are made in China. And when you actually look at the key components within the solar panels, like the wafers and things that are take the most energy, it's using coal fire, uh, coal fire power plants to make that stuff, that number goes up to 25 times more life cycle CO2 emissions than a nuclear power plant. Well, when you, if you were to ask your average person on the street, you know, what is the lowest CO2 option for generating power? I think your average person might say solar panels or solar energy. Yeah. When in fact, the ones that are made in China, which is almost all of them, are generating 25 times more CO2 than a nuclear power plant. So this is something that is all kind of hidden beneath the surface and is not accessible or available. So I try to condense this kind of information and put it into that more accessible format. Tell us how to get a copy of the book. Um, the, oh, I got to mention one other thing about the book. <laughs> that Brian has done this. This is a complete nonprofit deal. He ain't making any money from this. This is for his concern and advocacy over making the correct choices when it comes to power. I mean, our future depends on it. So I just wanted to make sure people knew that, Brian. Uh, congratulations for that. That's a terrific contribution to make. But uh, where can I get a copy? Well, you can just go to my website, BrianGit.com, and right there on the homepage, you, you can order a copy. As you said, I, I'm certainly not doing this to make money. I mean, in general, people don't write books to make money in general, but this is actually, I'm subsidizing this book. Um, we tried to, we designed it um, to be as inexpensive as possible to ship it. So that, and also so we could give it away to at conferences and events or for cost. So we basically are uh, providing this at cost. Uh, and not making any profit on it whatsoever because I just think it's imperative that we change the energy narrative. And we need to empower people with facts, with information, with frameworks to make better decisions around energy. And I didn't want costs or, you know, I, I don't need to make money on a book, right? I mean, this is, I'm doing fine. And I'm just really wanting to spread this information and get it out there. And so putting it in a format that, like, for example, I've had energy executives come to me just that they want to hand they want to get 50 copies or 100 copies that they can hand out at various keynote presentations they've given at conferences and things like that which is great because that's exactly what i imagined would be a perfect use of this getting in the hands of a very targeted audience of people that need to understand this information and actually are making decisions around investment in energy infrastructure, whether it's policymakers, whether it's investors, or whether it's corporate leaders. Those are kind of the people that ultimately we need to influence. Well, let me just say this. That's at Brian Gitt 
on Twitter, which you can get at BrianGit.com. Just remember, Git is spelled G-I-T-T, two T's, Brian Git. And Brian, as soon as we're done here, I'll order my next 50. I'm telling you right now, I will. <laughs> oh, thank I you. I... This is the same, same passion for educating. The more educated you are, obviously, the better decisions. And we found out in the last couple of years, if we didn't know, man, we better start making the right energy decisions. And, uh, and I just think an informed public. So I congratulate you for that. But I guarantee it. I'll be buying the next 50. Brian, <laughs> thank you for taking your time. Thank you, Mike. Really appreciate the opportunity. It's always great talking with you. Hey, wait a minute. I just had an idea. We're going to give away the 50. I'm buying them, Brian. I promise the 50 copies of it. But we'll give it to the next 50 people who sign up for five minutes with Mike. And it's easy to do. Go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and you'll see up top there your little click on. You click on the free e-service button there and just sign up. The next 50 people who do that. Well, we're going to get a copy of Brian's book, In the Darkness. It's, uh, as I say, I've really thought it was a valuable uh, book, and he's done a great job of making it brief, making it uh, uh, understandable and affordable, all of those things. But it's really affordable here. It's going to be free. So go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, click on the uh, free e-service button up there, sign up. The first 50 people to do that will get five minutes with Mike. And anyone else who does it, well, don't worry, you get the free e-service. Time now for the quote of the week. You know, that testimony we all talked about, the presidents of Harvard, MIT, University of Pennsylvania before the U.S. Committee. I think it's been viewed, last time I checked, over 120 million times and near universal condemnation. So far, Liz McGill, who was the president of Penn, she's resigned, but she's still a tenured professor, by the way, so don't hold any tag days for her. Well, president of MIT uh, has not uh, Harvard has not, which brings me to the quote of the week. It's courtesy of Nicholas uh, Christakis. He's a well-known Sterling professor of social and natural sciences at Yale. Well, he directly quotes a letter from someone who he describes as one successful, one smart, and one substantial donor. In quotes, apparently the putative reason Harvard decided to support Claudine Gay, certainly not because she's a black woman, was that it was important for the school to remain immune to outside pressures from wealthy donors. But this is even a worse reason than saying, we won't fire a black woman, because the arrogance behind them not listening to voices outside the ivory tower is precisely what got them here in the first place. These school presidents, wallowing in nuance, legalese, and my truths, in quotes, is precisely why the rest of the nation is so repulsed by them. It is clear that they are telling the taxpayer, give us tax breaks for our donors, no taxation on endowment gains, direct grants for research, low interest loans for tuition, and keep your damn mouth shut. I thought that was a pretty good summation of how people were feeling. But as I say, coming from a major donor, that situation is not over yet. I'm going to bring Mike Levy in right now. Mike, I think it's safe to say that the stock market 
the bond market had already started reacting to the prospect of lower interest rates in the U.S., but I think they were definitely surprised at sort of the dovish tone taken by the head of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, this week. People were looking that he might want to walk back some of the enthusiasm we were seeing in the in the bond market and somewhat in the stock market. But man, he went the other direction. The market just turned, as Victor has been warning us, went green light on us with some of the strength, all time high in the high in the Dow, for example. Uh, absolutely, Mike. And, you know, there was one key word that he used in a statement yesterday. And Michael G- Gregory from BMO here in Canada picked it up. He was talking about more policy firming. Policy firming means more raising of interest rates. And now he de- and he didn't see more policy fir- uh, uh, firming, did not see it. But he added the word any. He doesn't see any more policy firming, which means to me and to those that are reading it is interest rate hikes are now off the table. He doesn't see it anymore and said it. And in fact, they're now starting to talk more actively actively about cutting interest rates, something that you and I have been talking about for quite some time. And uh, he judges that rate cuts will commence uh, uh, like sort of sooner rather than later. Yeah, well, the Federal Reserve saying three rate cuts in 2024, but the market is saying six. So the market is much more bullish. Uh, and as I say, I think the big question is the market was expecting a hawkish statement. They're expecting after the market reacted so abruptly in the bond market, you know, to lower rates prospect. And I'm going back to, I think it's since October 25th, the stock market's up 12%. You know, they're going bullish. Uh, The dawn market, you know, yields came down a full percent in many cases. They thought he'd try and temper that to slow it down because those are both inflationary moves. But to slow it down, I'm wondering what changed his mind? What is he seeing going forward? Is he seeing a much worse economic background than he thought there was going to be? So no need to, you know, temper it any further? I don't know. But that's got to be the big debate going on is what did they see that generally market analysts did not in terms that would allow him to sort of give a bit of a green light, as I say, three prospective rate cuts this year, next year, 2024. Uh, yeah, next year. And, and what you've got is Canada, Mike, saying basically the same thing, that they are going to start to look at lowering interest rates. But surprised me again today is the European Central Bank and the Bank of England. Uh, when I say today, I meant Friday. The U- European uh, Central Bank and the Bank of England also held rates steady and talk about there is also about rate cuts. Well, this is a really a 180 from where we were talking talking about a month ago, six weeks ago. So as you say, it's a big change. What is driving this change? And to me, it's a worry. And the reason it's a worry is if you from the central banks are going to get people to feel better about going out and spending, better about buying houses, better about buying cars, aren't you fueling inflation with that kind of talk? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if they're going to lower rates, they're they're saying that the inflation battles won and they may be right but they may just have sabotaged that, if you know what I mean. So if they'd left things alone, they may get their wish, the economy weaker than people thought, et cetera. But you're right. They're now balancing it off against government spending, balancing it off against record low rates. So, yeah, I'll leave it at that. But, yeah, there's there's lots to be continued here. And the other thing was 
that we were talking about is the chance of recession as we come out of this. And um, we thought the chance of recession maybe was receding a little bit. Well, Powell sees it even more so. And I want to leave you with this quote. The unemployment rate remains in its very low range. Claims for unemployment insurance are low and the stock market is rallying, which isn't usually what happens when the economy is about to fall into recession. These things are not yet. So uh, recession off the table. But, Mike, it wasn't more than a month ago. We were talking maybe a, a, a light recession, a smaller recession, but certainly not taking it off the table. I'll talk more with Victor about what the market impression of all of this was. But I will say this. So if he's saying the recession's off the table, that's not the environment to lower rates in. You know, and so that's what he's also the market's projecting and the Fed is projecting much more to be continued. Thanks, Michael. Go out and have a great week. You also, Mike. Thank you. You know, if you're a regular listener, you know, on occasion, I get a little discouraged by some of the media coverage we get and some of the reporting we get. And then I come across or I don't come across, but I remember there are people who do the job in a way that benefits all of us. And Vivian Krause is at the top of my list with that. I always say, hey, there's good people like Vivian. She was our person of the year for her incredible work, uh, bringing to our attention the degree to which American oil company or sorry, environmental groups came to impact our oil and gas industry up in Canada. And I'm really pleased to welcome her back to the show. Vivian, nice to see you. Great to see you again, Michael. Thank you so much. What have you been up to? Because I can tell you this. Let's go back just for a second, remind people. Like, without you, I think the level of influence that American uh, environmental NGOs were having on our entire industry, on our political process, etc., wouldn't have been anywhere realized to the degree now I think most of us appreciate it. Ah. Well, it, you know, it, it's, it's a good feeling to be useful. And um, that's what I was trying to do. So well, um, the amount of work it took, though, was incredible. It I was. Mean, it it was, was a lot of work. Well, it just reminded me of, of what it was like to go through all these tax returns to see American foundations, environmental foundations, a lot of times or foundations just supporting the environment. All of a sudden, you appear up in Canada, too. And I, and I think, as I say, we were incredibly naive to the level of foreign interference. Yeah. I, I don't know if I would necessarily call it foreign interference, because I think we need to distinguish between what is driven by a state mm. and what is driven by private interests. You know, and in, in the case of the funding of environmental activism, it was large American um, charitable foundations. And what concerned me was the size is that we had these billion dollar foundations that were all funding hundreds of groups. So frankly, I would have been just as concerned if it had been Canadian money as it was, as if it was American, but it was, it was the fact that it was big money in a sense, looking like small money, like hundreds of, of different environmental groups, right? That was, that was one concern. And then the second concern was the objective. The stated objective of the campaign was, and I quote, they said that from the very beginning, from the very beginning, the objective of this tar sands campaign was to, and I quote, landlock the tar sands so that the crude could not reach the international market where it could fetch a high price per barrel. Now, whether it had been, you know, it could have been the oil industry in eastern Canada, it could have been whatever the origin was of the money. I didn't see how that helped the environment. Because if Canada doesn't produce oil, 
It just means someone else does, especially with us being such a small producer. Right. That, that's a terrific point, uh, you know, that gets overlooked, you know, way too often is that people are still going to use energy. That's what they know. They're using energy. And haven't we got that lesson over the last three years and, and especially in Europe last year when all of a sudden Germany turns to coal when they don't have alternatives and we see coal uh, production going up and consumption going up. But the point being they're going to use oil. And it's just, who do they get it from? And, and that was so consistently overlooked. Who is going to be the substitute when Canada has an ethical oil industry? Yeah. And so, so, so my point was that the tar sands campaign didn't keep a single barrel of oil in the ground. Mm-hmm. What it did is it kept Canada out of the global oil market. So it meant that we weren't getting global prices for our oil. We, you know, we were giving up as much as sometimes 20 or $30 per barrel. Okay, so it's not an exaggeration to say that over the course of 10 years, we left 100 billion on the table, right? If we had been getting global prices for our oil, we'd have made a lot more money. And then we could have actually put that money into actually the R&D, the new technology that we need to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. So that was my concern was that this so-called environmental campaign was not benefiting the environment there somebody was benefiting but it was the american economic and trade interests that were benefiting not the environment so i was like trying to say hey guys you know if you're if you want to reduce how much fossil fuel we use which frankly i do too then let's do something that works something successful something effective because this is just helping other countries and of course over the over the course of this tar sands campaign which began around 2007 even 2008 2009 you know since then the american oil production has more than doubled almost tripled okay and of course the yeah. canadian production the canadian production increased as well but but you know they're still like two or three times ahead of us right so Anyway, but what was interesting, Michael, is over the course of, of the last, it's, it's going back almost 20 years now, really. So I, I was looking at the, the campaigns, the activism against all of our resource-based industries. It started with forestry. It was aquaculture, salmon farming, and of course, then oil and gas. And at the center of it all was an environmental charity called the Tides Foundation. And they had an office in the U.S. in San Francisco and a Vancouver-based office. And they were sort of the hub for all of these um, activist campaigns and elections activism, okay? Especially the um, – um, well, and, and, and that, in a sense, is okay, except that I think it needs to be out in the open. And the fact that it wasn't, that no one knew about it until, you know, I dug up the strategy papers. That, that was what concerned me. And to their credit, this group funds a lot of good causes. You know, they're, they're trying to run campaigns against violence against women, um, domestic violence, gun violence, discrimination, racism, all sorts of good stuff. And I think we can, we can agree on that. But that doesn't mean we can't say, hey, this environmental campaign you've got here, can we do that a little differently? You know, so that's the point I was trying to make. But anyway... Through the course of all this, I, you know, I was looking at the various organizations that were funding tides. And the first year, I noticed that they got this grant for $9. That's it, 9 bucks. And I thought, oh, that's a mistake. Like someone left off three zeros or something, right? There's got to be a decimal in the wrong place or something. But no, it was $9. And then two years later, it was another one, $96. 
It's like, what's going on here, right? And the charity that was making these super teeny tiny grants was called CHIMP. Okay, they've since changed the name to Charitable Impact Foundation. Mm -hmm. So I've been following them now for, it's close to 10 years, and they have made thousands of super tiny grants, like more than 3,000 grants of less than $19 each. So like, What's the charitable impact? Okay, for example, the Syrian Children's Foundation got $1 of all the charities in the world. Why would you send $1 to the Syrian children? It just made no sense. So that put them on my radar. And so did the fact that this network of charities, there were hundreds of charities all with the same address and the same directors. Okay, one woman, director of 75 charities at the same time over the same years. So it's like, what's, what's going on here, right? So I've been following that, that group for um, a number of years now. And I noticed, uh, it's four years ago already, that they made a gift for $74 million. So that was the thing. At the one end of the scale, you had thousands of these teeny tiny gifts, less than 20 bucks. And at the other end of the scale, you had some huge gifts and super quiet, not even a press release, yeah. okay? So this $74 million gift went to a, a foundation based in Burnaby that built and owned a sports center. It's now named the Christine Sinclair Community Sports Center, right? Because the city of Burnaby bought it at the end of 2020. And when, they, when that sale was announced, they said, oh, you know, they're in financial trouble because of COVID. I said, wait a second. No, no, no. Come on. You just got $74 million. How can you be in any financial trouble, right? So that, um, you know, got me digging into this and, and looking to see what was going on. And then the other thing was, I said, where'd you get your price? Like, why is the city of Burnaby putting $26 million of cold, hard cash into this charity? Why are you buying it? Like, charities are supposed to give, not sell real estate, okay? And okay, fine, if you are going to buy it, where'd you get your price? Because the assessed value is not even 16. So why are you paying 26, right? So anyway, so I, I had, you know, questions about this. So I wrote to the founder of Fortius Foundation and also to Chimp, which had made this $74 million gift. And he said, hey, guys, what's the $74 million for? And actually, before the sports center was even, before the sale was even announced, I'd written to them a year prior and said, what's the $74 million for, right? No answer. They did reply, but they didn't answer the question. Mm -hmm. So that, that's what that's what put this on my radar. So I, you know, when I couldn't get a response from anybody um, on either foundation, not the donor nor the recipient, I I wrote to the city of Burnaby, wrote to the mayor and council, and I went to the RCMP. And I, you know, they started an RCMP investigation, which ran for about a year and a half until May of last year, and then it was turned over to the CRA. And of course, over the last year, um, 19 of the charities that are part of this network have been revoked by CRA, including Fortius Foundation. Okay, so once that charity was revoked, we had the audit report from the CRA, and then publicly a lot more information becomes available because in the audit report, CRA explains what they found in the audit. Right, so. What they found was mainly two things. So one was that the founder um, had a, a for-profit business, 
Okay, so the charitable foundation leased the sports center to a second entity, which then subleased it to the founder's private business. Okay, but they didn't pay the lease, so they were essentially giving him the sports center on a rent-free basis. And the CRA said, "You can't do that." Okay, charity, you have to charge market rent, rent, right? And if you have a legally binding lease agreement, you need to stick to it. The guy's got to pay the lease. Okay, and he didn't pay the lease. So they, the CRA said that he could be charged a penalty of $13 million. And another thing was his, the employees at his business were being paid through the charity. They say, you can't do that either, right? You gotta, you're going to run a business, run a business. You're going to run a charity, run a charity. But you can't run your business through a charity. So his charity was revoked by CRA. And he tried to get an injunction against the CRA by going to the Federal Court of Appeal. He lost. He tried to be heard by the Supreme Court of Canada, and his application was dismissed. But he's still suing me, so um, that's kind of what I'm where I'm at personally. But I think, if I may say so, on a bigger level, Michael, I'm fighting for something here. I'm fighting for fairness for all taxpayers, because I found out what was the seventy-four million dollar gift. I found out. Yeah. And it was money just going in circles. So Chimp gave, quotes, $74 million to Fortia's foundation. They used that money to pay debts to five charities, all directed by the same group of people. And those five charities then gave the money back to Chimp. So it was a big circular transaction. And I said, guys, that's not a gift, okay? It's not a gift when you get your money back. You know, there, there are criteria for a gift at law, okay? And one of them is a true transfer of property. You know, you have to have a true intent to benefit the, the recipient. And the donor becomes impoverished, essentially, by the value of the gift, right? It's, it's okay for there to be some small amount of benefit flowing back to the donor, but not the entire amount, okay? So, so that's what I'm fighting for here, is that I have found a long list of gifts in the tens of millions of dollars and their circular transactions. So, so there's a few people getting very big tax breaks by not, by, by not making true charitable gifts. So the trouble is, like, I mean, I think a lot of us, like if everyone could do this, we, who wouldn't want to get it? Who doesn't want a $74 million tax cut if, if you're making that kind of money, right? Or you've got a business that can benefit from it. I think we probably all love it. But we just can't run our economy like that if everybody's running their business through charity, right? So what we, what, I think what, I, what we have to fight for, and I'm fighting for it, is fairness. That no CRA favoritism. So if one charity can, can do it, then everybody can do it. And, 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 but if one, you know, some charities are getting shut down for doing certain things then everybody gets the same treatment, right? And it really concerns me that this, it, just to give you one example, this $74 million gift is one of the largest in Canadian history. It was the single largest gift in BC history up until that point. And it's not a true gift. You know, it's fascinating. I mean, certainly charities have come under scrutiny also in other areas. I'm remembering some reports coming out there. So, you know, to be able to take the time and shine the light and, and bring up the question, 
you know, bring up the question, as you just said, is this, is this, uh, is this fair? Do everyone get treated this way? What does this mean for our, our adjudication of charities, that kind of thing? And I think it is a major concern for individuals. And, but I, I want to just finish with a concern for you that I want to invite people to go to fair questions, you know, on Twitter or X, sorry, on X, formerly known as Twitter, but go to fair questions. And, uh, you know, one of the things is uh, you have a GoFundMe page that I just contributed to. Why? Because I think this work's important. As simple as that. Just like, you know, a continuation of the work you did uh, when talking about our oil and gas industry here. It's important work and it's uh, it's difficult. And there's a lot of personal sacrifice. So I want to invite people to go to Fair Questions uh, on X, formerly Twitter, and, uh, you know, go to the GoFundMe page and help out to keep this kind of research going because, uh it benefits all of us to know more, to have more education, more information. And Vivian, so my big congratulations to you. You're, you are tireless. It's incredible, <laughs> but tireless. And as I say, it's a benefit to all of us. So uh, my thanks. And uh, as I say, invite people to go to Fair Questions. Well, thank, thank you very much, Megan. I, you know, I sort of did this on the side of my desk um, for years, you know, and I, and I think a lot of us volunteer in in all sorts of different ways, right? Some people are coaching kids sports teams and, and you know, people do all sorts of have ways of contributing. For many years, this was this was mine. But the work that I'm doing now has become very expensive because I'm looking at real estate transactions through charities. Yeah. Okay, I found 188 of them so far. Okay, yeah. all the same network of charities. So this part of the work that I'm trying to do is gotten very expensive. And I need to do I need to have because of the, the legal action against me, I need to um, I need another forensic auditors report. Um, I, you know, so these the people that the lawyers that have um, have, you know, generously given me legal counsel, you know, I think everybody's given me a break. But yeah, it's expensive. there's still costs. There's there's still costs, you know, so I really, really appreciate the, the support. Thank you well, so much. We appreciate the work, Vivian. Thanks so much. Uh, again, we'll put it on our web pages and stuff, our social. But uh, go to Fair Questions, Fair Questions on uh, X, and uh, read up more about it. Vivian, have a Merry Christmas, and thank you for finding time. You too. Thank you so much, Michael. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. I can't think of another time I've been able to sum up what we're all about here on Money Talks when it comes to your personal finances. I can't remember a time I've been able to do that in a single stat. As I've repeatedly say, repeatedly say, protecting the purchasing power of our money is the biggest challenge to our financial future, one that's directly propelled by the declining confidence in government. And by the way, I'm not popular with political partisans for pointing that out. And certainly some disagree, especially those who do live and breathe politics. And I do welcome the uh, feedback, but so far, I think I've had the big I told you so moment that the big problem is the declining purchasing power of our currency. If you're a regular listener, you hear me saying on many occasions that the thing I love about finance and economics is while there's a variety of opinions, even strong disagreements, especially when anything overlaps with politics. But in the end, it's going to be clear who was correct. Our goal on Money Talks and at the World Financial Conference is to protect you financially. And goodness knows, the government won't. They're not doing it. Their fingerprints are all over the cost of living challenges we're dealing with, whether you're talking affordable housing or gasoline, rental squeeze in major urban centers. 
ever-increasing taxes. The big problem is that the continued erosion over time of the purchasing power of our money is making it tough for people to live. Over half the population is having trouble. And as I've stated on numerous occasions, given the amount of money that central banks are creating out of thin air, at some point, the confidence is going to leave the currency. We've got about 150 examples worldwide right now. Maybe Argentina, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, Cuba. Well, those currencies may top the list as the buying power drops so much it literally changes overnight in a matter of hours some days. What makes me laugh, though, is when people say it can't happen here, when in fact, for our entire lifetimes of everyone listening, it has been happening. And that brings me to the shocking stat of the week. It's straightforward. We accept paper currencies because we believe we can exchange them for goods and services. But increasingly, that paper buys less. So here's a shocking stat in the form of a question. Now, the Central Bank of Canada was formed in 1935. Its role was to protect the purchasing power of the currency. Okay, so let's see how they've done. How much a dollar spent in 1935? You take a buck and you spend it in 1935 and you see what you can buy with it. How much would that same basket of goods cost you today? Are you ready? One dollar of goods bought in 1935 it would cost you 20 time, 22 times more today because the cumulative price increase is 2,078%. If you want to reverse it, our dollar today buys about four and a half cents worth of stuff that it would have bought in 1935. And my point, my big point, is you've got to protect yourself against this trend. That's what we're doing here. That's what we will do at the World Outlook Conference. So keep that in mind. Hey, by the way, I just want to remind you, we're going to do that uh, giveaway of Brian Gitt's book, In the Darkness. That's right. For the first 50 people who sign up for uh, Five Minutes with Mike, which you just go to the website, uh, mikesmoneytalks.ca. We bought 50 copies, as you've heard earlier. Well, we're going to give them away. So just sign up to Five Minutes with Mike by going on the tab up top when you go to the main page, mikesmoneytalks.ca, and just click on the free e-service. First 50 people will get a copy of that book. And of course, a reminder that we are doing the World Outlook uh, Conference February uh, 2nd and 3rd. uh, Just a massive list of quality speakers. But again, my whole point is to help us survive this period, help us survive a period where the purchasing power of our dollar has clearly been eroded, but there's much more to come. So I hope to see you there. I'm going to bring Ozzy Jurek in right now. Ozzy, a couple of things occurred to me right off the top of my head. It is interesting how all of a sudden you've got provincial and federal government talking about housing, you know, talking about that, the industry. Not that they didn't, but up to this point, so much of the talk has just been, aren't we wonderful and we're making it affordable. And by the, by the way, I won't tell you I'm going to add to the cost of real estate. You know, and that's the other, they have <laughs> yeah. not told us the whole story. But all of a sudden, at the polls are telling them this is a big issue. And I find that just farcical, you know, to be honest. I find it just farcical. What you just discovered, we got a problem this way, but they're acting like it. And they say, pat me on the back for having a suggestion. But one of those suggestions floated at the federal level this past week was to have sort of at least the opportunity to have a pre-approved design. So tell us more about that. Well, actually, BC led the way. They, they, they bought it out a week earlier. And the idea is to have new standardized designs 
for sort of small-scale multi-unit homes. You know, remember, under the new laws in BC that they're going to, by the way, they have not been voted on yet, but, but that are being proposed, the idea is that you can, on your single-family home lot throughout BC pretty well, put a fourplex or a sixplex, even if it's close to transit-oriented. Yeah. And now the federal government says, yeah, we're going to do the same thing. And in fact, the housing minister federally said it's bringing back a policy from the post-Second World War area, where CMHC developed blueprints to speed up the construction of homes. So we went way back in history to solve our problems. But, but it's all about speeding up the approval process, because if the design's been already approved, even if it's 70 years ago, you know, they're hoping to push things forward faster. Well, and actually that makes sense, Mike, because certainly, particularly in a smaller municipality, you know, the, the builder makes a development, uh, appro- uh, looks for an approval on a design. Now they have to go and hire somebody to say, is that worthwhile? Now here we have one that is from the government. It's approved. We can approve it faster. That's a good thing. The only thing is we also have obviously these additional things because now we say in, in BC, we say if it's close to transit, and me, including the meters away from a transit hub and the time of the buses are arriving, if you do that, then there's different rules. So for, just to give you an idea, we, we did put in the legislation already in Victoria and in Vancouver, and it all made sense. Yes, you can put a fourplex on there, but then people looked into it and the regulations were ridiculous and none have been built. Now, in fairness to Vancouver, it was just launched, but in Victoria, they haven't. And so municipalities now must allow up to four units on any lot. If the lots are below 1,200 square feet, then 50% of it can be covered. Now, parking is required at one space per unit or one space for two units if you're within 800 meters of a transit stop. Oh, and by the way, if you can have up to six units, then you don't have to provide any parking at all. Did I lose you somewhere in there, Mike? Yeah. (laughs) Because that's how somebody that's going to look at the regulation is going to feel... So, okay, just a minute now, what am I qualifying for? The other thing is this, though, I mean, uh, besides them discovering this, first of all, there's going to be how long is it going to take to get this implemented? But I think the bigger picture is they're talking about fundamentally changing neighborhoods, the character of neighborhoods. I think that's the thing that people, you know, uh, I I started off the show today saying, you know, it's funny. We all fell asleep when we woke up and anti-Semitism was rampant on you know throughout university campuses are we going to fall asleep and find out that yes free speech has been seriously curtailed and here's another example are you going to fall asleep not pay much attention and then your neighborhood changes dramatically that's because it's not going to be popular when that happens and I just think people have got to be paying attention to this stuff. And your point's well taken. It's been so onerous in Victoria where you could at least, uh, you know, build on your own lot uh, under a certain circumstances, but nobody took them up on it. I, I, you know, these are... Pa- oh, that's what, Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, that's why you need to see the guidelines. And in fairness to the government, they just announced they're going to do it. They have to hire builders and appraisers and whatnot, and it has to be approved. I mean, I could just imagine the government says, build to this plan, and there's something wrong with it. Mm. So that means, as you rightly pointed out, it's going to take time. It's going to take at least a year before you have those plans ready to actually be disseminated to, to the marketplace. The problem is also, what about, and as you again point out rightly, what about an existing grocery store that's commercially zoned? And right beside them, all of the, the buildings that get now can put up sixplexes or fourplexes. Or you have a lovely little cul-de-sac that you and your family have been in there for 15 years. Now your neighbor to the left has a fourplex, to the right they have a triplex. It changes the fabric in a very 
effort that we made as Canadians to have that home ownership. Well, and again, uh, people have got to pay attention to this stuff. Uh, it's, it's, it's fundamental, I think, to, as you say, as Canadians live. Ozzy, I'm going to leave it at that for, for now. There's much more to talk about, but I appreciate you bringing it to our attention. And as I say, attention, the key word there. Ozzy, go out and have a terrific week. Thank you very much, Mike. And I will. And one thing about, we always talk about governments, you know, Oscar Amaringer said that politics is the gentle art of getting votes from the poor and campaign funds from the rich by promising to protect each other from the other. <laughs> That's a great quote. A great quote. But you can find more with Ozzy Jurok at ozbuzz.ca. ozbuzz.ca. Thanks, Ozzy. I want to go live to the trading desk, bring in Victor Adair now. Vic, I was chatting a bit earlier with Mike Levy, but you know, I, I think it's a fair assessment to say that the markets were surprised by the Federal Reserve and Jay Powell's, let's call it a dovish statement, that I think I was thinking they're going to sort of walk back the enthusiasm that was so evident in the bond market and the stock market you know, over the last few weeks. And that's going to be inflationary ultimately. So I thought, hey, maybe he's going to kind of temper some of that. Well, he sure didn't. He sure didn't. I mean, uh, there was reason for so many analysts that I follow were expecting some degree of pushback from Powell. And the fact that he really didn't just, I think, stunned the market. And, you know, some people were saying, gee, why, 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 why? The market said, the hell with why, just buy everything. <laughs> you know? yeah, I think that's a great point, though, that, uh, you know, the why, you know, can be important, but not, not as important as what are the, what's the reaction? What's going on there? And as you said, uh, you know, certainly the bond market, my gosh, you know, and the stock market, though, uh, and gold. I mean, it was kind of like you've been talking about this for a while and you've been saying, look, Mike, it's one market out there. It's just one market, you know, and we go down, we go up. Well, this was a we go up on the surprise of the dovishness or the level of dovishness that uh, Jerome Powell came out with. Yeah, the, the reactions, I mean, just the quick stuff. I mean, the Dow Jones is up 5,000 points in seven weeks, up every week for seven weeks, to an all-time high, by the way. Yeah. I mean, the, the shares of Royal Bank of Canada, we all know that. I mean, they're up, what, uh, 25% in seven weeks. Apple's at new all-time highs. Uh, it, it, it was a buy-everything market. You know, gold was up to 60 or $70. The U.S. dollar got hammered. You know, it was. it's all one market in that sense. And the market is sentiment driven and the sentiment is taking its absolutely taking its lead from what the central banks are doing. Okay. My big question to you is, as a professional trader. Okay. So obviously you're, you've just described it. There's this huge sentiment change and move. At what point though, how can the federal reserve top this? If you know what I mean? Like, Okay, if we think the market's saying it's going down and, you know, they priced in six rate decreases, the Fed, the Federal Reserve itself said three, but six rate decreases, you know, coming up. Okay, well, it's made a move. The market's already moved on that basis, that consensus. And I'm just saying, well, wait a second, what should I do now? Well, if we go back to September, October, the market was in a slide, you know, it was, mm -hmm. the sentiment was off, the U.S. dollar was getting bid, the stock market was coming, and we did a 180 at the roughly the end of October for stocks, middle of October for the bond market, and I'm going to say it again, the stock market could not have had the rally it had if the bond market hadn't have done what it did, and this is the biggest move we've seen in the bond market in the course of six weeks since 
you know, like since forever, as far as most traders are concerned. Uh, the, 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 the positioning in the market was clearly bearish near the lows in October. It's become increasingly bullish as the market has run up here. I would call it like uh, Alan Greenspan, you know, irrational exuberance here. And for me, at Thursday's highs this past week, when the market was pricing in six cuts from the Fed uh, come this next year, I said, sold to you, baby. You know, I just, yeah. this is, I'm, I'm happy to take that kind of a trade. I might be wrong a couple of times trying to get it on, but I think it's, I think it's just way overdone here. Well, as I say, this is a to be continued there, but I wanted to finish with one thing though, Vic, and that is interesting to see the Bank of Canada come out on Friday and say, hey, we're not American here. Yeah, that's basically Tiff Macklin come out and said it's too early to be talking about this. By the way, so did the European Central Bank, so did the Bank of England, so did the Bank of Mexico. I mean, every bank and his brother was out reporting this week, but Tiff kind of was like with everybody else. It's too early to be talking about cuts. You know, we kind of got the idea they're not going to raise anymore unless they're something really big comes up and they have to raise. But, you know, I've been quoting Paul Simon in my blog for the past couple of weeks uh, from his song called The Boxer, where he says, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. Well, the market wants to hear cuts because maybe if they're going to cut, you know, you buy everything. Well, I, I, you know, talk about a cliche to finish with, but in my case, but boy, is it going to be interesting because <laughs> as you say, they've got disagreement globally. You've got disagreement within the Fed itself, clearly. They're worried. Obviously, it's been an inflation fight. Well, what they've just said and the market reactions inflationary, you know, uh, the list is a long one. So guess what, Vic? You're going to be busy over the next while. And it doesn't matter that it's Christmas. You're going to be busy. And we appreciate you finding time. And as I say, you've got lots to say. And I want to, I want to make sure people go to your blog, which is victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Uh, the charts are going to be wild. Wear a neck brace to watch them. Vic, have a great week. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, just over two weeks ago, Canada voted against a UN resolution calling for, in quotes, a humanitarian truce. They voted against it because it didn't specifically even mention Hamas's attack on Israel on October 7th. At the time, the government said it couldn't support the resolution because the role of Hamas was being ignored. Our UN ambassador, Bob Ray, then put forward an amendment at that time that condemned Hamas for its role in October 7th, the terrorist attack, etc., which, not surprisingly, was defeated. So I want to fast forward to this week. And Canada, much to the delight of Iran, China, Russia, well, actually every totalitarian state in the planet, as well as every anti-Semitic one, supported a more formal UN resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire. And again, it did not mention Hamas. Not a word, not a sentence. By the way, there's no sign whether Hamas leader Mahmoud al-Zahar who stated, by the way, the uh, annihilation will be the fate of Jews, or Ghazi Hamid, who says, we'll repeat October 7th massacre time and again, or Hamas military leader, Mohammed Deef, who simply says, kill Jews wherever you find them. There's no sign whether they high-fived after the vote, but they sure would have approved of Canada's support. Now, to their credit, I want to be sure you know this, that uh, three well-known liberals did not back the prime minister did not back Foreign Minister Melanie Jolly's about face. And you had uh, former minister uh, and MP, Marco Mendocino, stating, 
I disagree with Canada's vote at the United Nations today. I do not support its call for Israel to agree to what is effectively an unconditional ceasefire. Anthony Houthfather stated, any cessation of hostility requires Hamas to release all hostages and lay down arms and surrender. Hamas, a terrorist organization, is entirely responsible for starting a war. Michael Levitt, he's a former Liberal MP, but chair of the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, stated, I am appalled to see Canada's policy shift at the United Nations General Assembly today. I mean, there's been nothing close to an explanation, though, from the Prime Minister as to why Canada abandoned its long history of supporting Israel and instead supporting a ceasefire that's going to benefit Hamas with no mention of their role or their attacks October 7th. And by the way, those were breaking an existing ceasefire agreement. Hamas has a record, a consistent record of breaking every other ceasefire agreement. And by the way, the day before this last truce expired, well, Hamas opened fire and killed three Israelis standing at a bus stop in West Jerusalem. But I think exacerbating the perception, at least of a morally conflicted government, is the fact that just a couple of hours before they voted in favor of a resolution of that resolution that has no mention of Hamas or hostages. At the same time, the government co-signed a statement with Australia and New Zealand that says Hamas was responsible for sexual violence against Israeli, was using Palestinian populations as human shields. I mean, so what gives? Maybe they plan to cite that statement when talking to Jewish groups while they point to their support of the Hamasless UN resolution when talking to Muslim groups like the Canadian Muslim donors to the Liberal Party who threatened to withdraw their financial support. As for the public, well, as UN Ambassador Bob Ray said, after voting along with the totalitarian anti-Semitic countries for the Hamasless resolution, when he thought the mic was turned off, he said, well, let's see how this flies. Well, let's see what it does with the Canadian public. That's all the time we have this week. Again, a couple of quick reminders that if you just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, you can click on the free uh, e-services up top and sign up for five minutes with Mike. And if you're one of the first 50, you'll get a free copy of Brian Gitt's book, Into the Darkness. Great stuff. Recommend it. Also, of course, uh, as I always say every week, I, I think it's important if you want to be fully informed to check out Money Talks tweets or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, because again, we got all day to include all sorts of extra sort of data or information or points of view that maybe you're not seeing elsewhere. And of course, I hope you go on and sign up for the World Outlook Conference. Why? Because we're giving away a Canadian Mint Maple Leaf one ounce gold coin. Well, that's pretty good. So anyone who prize right now in the month of December, you're getting entered into that draw. And as you say, at record highs, the cost or the value of it at record highs this week. So again, just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. You should be doing that all the time. Click on the events button, but sign up, get your ticket. Great Christmas gift too, if you're uh, you're worried about a last minute gift, but great Christmas gift. Get your ticket to the World Outlook Conference, you're automatically entered in the, bra, in the draw. In the meantime, I hope you go out and I hope you do have a wonderful week.